All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. <laughs> Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 11th day of December, 2018. Uh, before I talk to you more about today's show, I do like to remind you, uh, my newsletter is called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And you can subscribe by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. like to encourage you also to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's excellent letter. Chen focuses to a great extent on the biotechs, also some energy and gold mining shares as well. Chenpicks.com is the place to go for that. And, of course, we also like to remind you to go to olivermsa.com, olivermsa.com to sign up for either of Michael Oliver's excellent products, uh, the one perhaps most directly related to the interest of the listeners of this show is his uh, gold and silver uh, report that he provides on a, on a very re- uh, frequent basis, a couple of times a week anyway, some very interesting things that he'll be telling us in, in a minute or in a couple of minutes from now when we get a chance to say hello to him. Uh, I do want to thank our sponsors um, for today's show. They are RN Resources, Novo Resources, Sandstorm Gold, Triumph Gold, Gold Mining Inc., Uranium Energy, and Klondike Gold Corp. I've titled today's show, Where is America and Its Markets Heading in 2019? David McElvenny, Amira Nanny, and Michael Oliver are my guests this week. America's social and moral fiber is wearing thin, and the republic our founding fathers bequeathed to us in 1776 is rapidly being torn asunder. Why are traditional values being lost? Is it even possible to retain them in a rapidly changing world? How are declining moral values leading to America's economic decline? And given events within our control, what can we do to make this a better world, not just for ourselves materially, but also for the benefit of those we leave behind when we move on beyond the time and space of this, uh, of this world? So regarding the social and financial landscape of America, what does 2019 look like and how should we prepare? Well, we're going to ask David McIlvaney to share some of his thoughts on, on those topics. One market that is coming to life is uranium. Not many people are paying attention to it, but the uranium market uh, is showing real renewed signs of life. And I'm getting quite excited about Uranium Energy Corp. Amir Nani will uh, talk to us about the rapidly changing dynamics in the uranium market space. It looked uh, very exciting for this company, one of the premier rising companies in the United States at Uranium Energy, uh, positioned to turn the lights on and start producing uranium as soon as the uranium price gets a bit higher than where it is now. 
and uh, the prospects look very good for that stock in spite of the fact that it's uh, near its lows, if not at its lows right now. Uh, and for a technical view on uranium and on all the other key markets that we talk to him about every week, I'm really pleased to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you with me, Michael. And uh, wow, you, you put out uh, a headline last week uh, to your gold subscribers that, that actually had made some made the rounds in the uh, in the internet. Um, you you said something like. Um, Gold will take out five-year highs in the next 50 trading days. In other words, sometime, I guess, within the next couple of months or so, you expect to see some real fireworks in gold. Do I have you right on that? And if so, yeah, uh, what convinces so. you? You know, you normally, Michael, you normally don't uh, talk in such unequivocal uh, words, I would say. You, usually, it's not that you're hedging, but you're just, you know, your work tells you definitively or not um, Usually in one direction or not, definitively. But this, you seem to be very adamant that we are likely to see, very likely to see some real fireworks in the gold space. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I, I do. And it wasn't just examining the gold market uh, via our metrics. It's examining everything. And uh-huh. uh, we think the stock market is topped, and we think the stock market is on the verge within several percent of here of collapse mode. Um, and... Obviously, you think about this. You're a wealthy person, whether Europe, Japan, or here, developed markets. You've got a lot of assets. If they were in the developed market stock indices, which they likely were, because why? They were performing well, right? Sure. Uh, all of a sudden, now you're shaking. You're not quite quite so sure. Uh, the DAX index in Germany, you know, the stout center of the Europe is, is frankly, <laughs> just melting. Uh, it, it, we have frequent emotional rallies in the last uh, month or so, the last two, three days, go up 100 S&P points, etc. They hardly even flinch in their down, downside move. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the blue chips of Europe are in trouble. They've broken massive structures on momentum, trend structures, that tell me uh-huh. not only is it the top end, but you're, you're at risk of sharp collapse, uh, a la 29.87. But it's even worse than that, because too many asset categories are also saying the same thing opposite. For instance, the T-bonds, which we got very bearish on in 2016, and again early this year, well above current levels. We flipped recently in the last several weeks and said, watch out, there's going to be one heck of a rally. And we mm-hmm. think it's largely not because the economy is weakening or some kind of metric or like that. It's simply, I think, assets moving. And if mm-hmm. you're moving out of stocks in the developed world, uh, you don't want to go to the emerging markets yet because it doesn't feel good. You know, there's mm-hmm. a feel-good sense there. And, and we think the emerging markets are a safer place to be, but mm-hmm. they still don't net, on balance, feel good to most investors. Therefore, that's not an alternative. So what are you left with? Government bonds. But you've mm-hmm. got no yield in Japan. You've got a quarter percent yield out of German 10-year bonds. Quarter percent, okay? Uh, and yeah. meanwhile, our bonds, you know, yielding a couple percentage points. You know, well yeah. above those. Therefore, I think there's money moving into the bond market and the note market, uh-huh. and I think uh-huh. that's what's driving them. Why? Because I think they sense that something big is underfoot here, and not something incremental, but something large and uh, huge drop in the stock market, for example. I think we've seen it before in history. The gold market is also feeling this. It's not volatile mm-hmm. like the bonds are, but mm-hmm. it's, it's moving up through some structures on our momentum trend charts that tell us, okay, that August low we just saw at 1161, that was it. That was a secondary low, well above the 2015 low. You're not going to threaten that. And we flip back up now. We're 1250 area. 
we think that we've crossed enough hurdles to say with some confidence that this thing's going to likely move up through the highs of the last 45 years, which is to say the upper 1300s, meaning get the 1400 and you blow them all out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that could happen quickly. But there's also, aside from a technical reason for the speed, it's so obvious when you look at a price chart that the market's been up and down in that area each of the last four or five years into the upper 1300s. If you were to crawl your way back through there and break out, that is not the way it is likely to happen. Everybody would see it coming. Everybody would have time to reorient their thinking. And we've seen too many market turns of this variety that when you get this ripe and it's ready, it doesn't give you time to think, to have a committee meeting. (laughs) Uh, Therefore, we think the next $100, $150 in gold could be very rapid. And we see that, that sense of speed in the bond market and in the stock market. So mm-hmm. all the three combined tell us, yes, this time it's different. We go up, but we don't go up slowly. All right, Michael, if we have that kind of a rapid rise then, would there be some dangers of a sharp pullback, or do you think that, you know, because... Uh, I, uh, but, yeah. Between here and there, no. Especially, I'll, tell, I'll give you another number. Uh, you get up into the 1280s. Now, that's just, you know, 2.5% above this week's highs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and already goals, you know, like... 90 bucks off the August low. So I'm talking another 20, 30 bucks. You get up into the 1280s. Now, when you look at a price chart, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mm-hmm. break out over anything. It's a, it's a teaser. Who cares? Yeah. But on momentum, it says you're gone. Uh-huh. That's where the, the breakout was above 1237, and we achieved that last week with the, in the 1240s. That's where we are right now. Uh, but the next 2.5%, I think that's when you'll start to get the real volatility of, of upside movement, not just, you know, 5 10 bucks here, but mm-hmm. all of a sudden, whooshes of $20, $30 moves on the way up. So right. there's one more hurdle, but we didn't want to wait for that because we think what we crossed last week was significant enough, period. All right, so you're seeing it in the momentum charts. The price uh, chart chartists aren't seeing it yet. You saw it when mm-hmm. it got through 1237. And I might just tell uh, my listeners that I've, I see this all the time in your work, Michael, is that your, um, your momentum work usually gives a heads up uh, before the people in the price charts see it in either direction. So I did, this is one of the reasons that I really, really appreciate your work so much. Well, I'd like to ask you about uranium because our next guest, mm-hmm. uh, Amir Adnani, is the CEO of a up-and-coming company, Uranium Energy. Uh, he's going to be here to talk to us about that. What are your charts telling you about uranium right now? Well, we started watching uranium. We also, in the energy sector, of course, with crude oil, which occupies everybody's mind and attention. Uh, and it did what we thought it would do uh, in July and again in October, namely find resistance in the mid-'70s. And so its recent pullback, which has been a collapse-type pullback, that's all the focus is on that. But what they're mm-hmm. not noticing is the action of natural gas and uranium. Mm-hmm. Uh, natural gas had a breakout for us in September. It went up 50% in the next two months. It wow. never made a headline. 50% move in two months. Okay, <laughs> Uranium. Uh, it had been uh, well over 100 back in the middle of the commodity boom in the 2008-10 period. And also there was a big drop into uh, 2010 down to $40. But then it shot back up into the 70s. So... These are price levels that uranium has been, but then it declined during the commodity decline of the last five, six years, all the way down to about $18, $17. That's like, off, that's like zero. I mean, yeah. it's not going to go to zero, but that's about as close to theoretical zero uh-huh. as a commodity of that price, per, former pricing could ever get. Well, it inched on up. Uh, there's a momentum base on uranium, annual momentum base. that goes back 
to, uh, it got below its three-year average back in 2011, and it had not been able to get above its three-year average despite a couple efforts since mm-hmm. then. So that's like a seven, eight-year-wide momentum base below wow. the three-year average. We registered a breakout, not above that level, but uh, in the spring of this year, above $23. Again, mm-hmm. only about $6 off its low. That further generated a crossover of the three-year average a month ago, Three-year average is twenty-seven eighty-six. It's mm-hmm. now about twenty-nine dollars. Mm-hmm. So uranium, from our technical point of view, is now broken out of a massive momentum base. The only problem is, as far as vehicles go to participate in uranium, uranium futures are highly illiquid. So mm-hmm. you can scratch that off. You've yeah. got the uranium stocks, and your guest today, I think, is sitting in an optimal position mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, will he trigger <laughs> re initiation of production uranium, I think highly mm-hmm. likely because the base has been completed. It's broken out. I think uh, those prices you can wave goodbye to. We're going up. All uh, right. All right. Well, it's certainly, uh, you know, just uh, your trustworthy work, Michael. Uh, it's just so accurate uh, over so many years now. I've been following you. Really want to thank you again for uh, sharing your wisdom and your time with us. And uh, as always, uh, look forward to talking to you next week again. Thank you, Jay. Alrighty. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but Amira Nanny of Uranium Energy will be with us, so don't go away. It's a very exciting story. I was reviewing it in preparation for today's show and decided to pick up some shares myself, so don't go away. We'll be right back with uh, Amira Nanny. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Noble has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Turning hard times into good times is brought to you in part by Sandstorm Gold Royalties. Sandstorm Gold Royalties is a different kind of gold company. They purchase royalties on select mining operations and receive a percentage of the revenue in return. Sandstorm now has a portfolio of over 185 gold royalties around the world. See how gold royalties differ from other gold mining investments at sandstormgold.com. That's sandstormgold.com. Sandstorm Gold Royalties trades on the TSX as SSL and the NYSE as SAND. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Amir Adnani, the Executive Chairman of Uranium Energy. 
And Amir is an entrepreneur, is a mining executive. I've known him for a number of years. He's actually the founder of Uranium Energy and uh, president and CEO of that company as well. And, uh, well, he has just uh, done a remarkable job over the past 13 years or so of assembling assets that I think are going to be extremely valuable. You just heard from uh, Michael Oliver why he thinks that we're getting ready for a major run in uranium. Uh, and we're going to uh, talk to Amir now uh, about what are some of the fundamentals that are underlying this uh, th- this uh, commodity that has been so out of uh, favor for so many years. Uh, Amir, thank you for joining me again. Hi, Jake. Good to reconnect. It's uh, really good to hear from you, especially now that things are really heating up in the uranium space. Very exciting times, I must say. I should tell our listeners Uranium Energy trades in the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol UEC. 176 million shares. I saw it trading at $1.22 in U.S. funds. Near its lows, I must say, giving it um, well a market cap of around $200 million, a little more. Um, cash uh, in the bank of $24.5 million. So you seem to be pretty well set, Amir. And I, I want to ask you, you know, since our last interview in April, uranium has been one of the best performing commodities uh, it's raised, risen from uh, oh twenty two to twenty nine dollars. What have been some of the key drivers of the stronger uranium price so far in this year uh, in two thousand eighteen? It's been mainly <clears throat> driven Jay by supply cuts. We've seen the world's uh, biggest uranium producer, the Canadian company Cameco and the Kazakh company Kazatomprom, basically. Uh, uh, shut down mines or reduce production from existing operations. Uh, and these supply cuts coupled with new financial entities that have been created to buy physical uranium as an investment, a buy and hold strategy, which means less uranium available to utility companies to be able to purchase for consumption or power generation, has really kind of created a bit of a perfect storm by taking material off the market. And uh, it's, uh, it's more so than any other time in the last seven years that we've, that we've seen. Obviously, seven years being kind of the mark of when uh, Fukushima happened, which is where the troubles in this industry kind of began. But, Jay, I feel like we've really turned a corner. I mean, this is the first year where global nuclear power output uh, uh, is greater than it was pre-Fukushima. This is the first year oh. that we're seeing a supply deficit in the uranium market since Fukushima. This is the first year where we're starting to see financial players, hedge funds, and other uh, entities that have been created to buy physical uranium. That was an important feature of the 2005-2006 market when Mm -hmm. we saw the uranium market price rally from $20 to $140 per pound. And so here we are hovering around... 29, as you point out, we're up nicely from $22 per pound uh, since the last interview you and I did in April. But the drivers are real, and you know this in any commodity. When the drivers have to do with fundamental supply demand, less supply and growing demand, it's the basic recipe for, uh, you know, for underpinning a nice rise in any commodity, and uranium is now finally benefiting from that. Yeah, and... Uh how many producers, I mean, we're looking at the, the current price of $29, uh, what percentage of production can be produced at a profit with $29 uranium? Most production in the world is not profitable at $29 uranium. And the best 
uh, way to understand that is how Chemical, as one of the big suppliers, mm-hmm. shut down its best mine, MacArthur River in Canada, and instead is entered the spot market to buy physical uranium to deliver into long-term contracts they had. So <laughs> not, nothing spells, you know, we've hit rock bottom with the commodity price when uh, a supplier is electing to buy that commodity that it's supposed to be producing and instead is elected to buy it in the market. Uh, and it's a very fascinating uh, picture to be looking at. And you just know it's a matter of time uh, before uh, the price gains um, uh, stronger momentum. But some of the political developments in the U.S., I think, have really sort of slowed down this move in the uranium market. Okay. What well, talk to us about that. Well, I think the last time I was on your show, you and I talked about how the administration in the U.S. is really investigating the U.S. over-dependence on foreign uranium. Right. Uh, and this uh, is a big issue because right now, 98% of U.S. uranium requirements are not mined from uh, U.S. sources or U.S. 98, projects. 98%. 98%. 98%. Okay. So where are we getting it? That's, that's, it's coming from all over the world, but 40% of it is coming from Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. And mm. Canadian share of that has gone down because even the Canadians can't make money at these uranium prices. So again, as I mentioned, the best mine in Canada, MacArthur River, was shut down. So there's a serious over-dependence on uh, these foreign imports. In late July, the U.S. Department of Commerce launched a probe into the national security matters, because it really is about energy and national security when you talk about uranium. And the conclusions of the report are expected to come out by or before April of 2019. So we're not that far away. And a final decision is to be made by the president by or before July of 2019. And it may be a combination of tariffs or quotas. We don't know. We have to wait and see what happens. But it's created some uncertainty. Uh, the, The rules haven't been spelled out. And so as a result, despite the fact that the utilities should be buying more uranium here, they sure as hell should be buying ahead of chemical buying and delivering to them. They simply have been almost frozen out of the market, Jay, because they want to wait to see what the outcome of this action by Department of Commerce and ultimately the president will be. Now, this is the same procedure that was taken for steel and aluminum. This is the same procedure that uh, was uh, looked at in some other instances as well, other industries, that Section 232 process. But I have to tell you, in the case of uranium, we feel, and we've been told by a number of analysts, that the merit of the case is even stronger when it comes to truly being one of uh, energy and national security with this 98% um, of of requirements not being mined here. So it creates a very interesting catalyst going into 2019, but you can appreciate why it it has also almost frozen the market a bit uh, while it's a pending issue. Mm-hmm. And it's not just power plants, uh, Amir. I understand the military and the uh, nuclear-powered submarines and so forth. It, it's really a very crucial uh, metal, isn't it? I mean, it's not just power plants. Power plants is uh, significant enough. I think we get about 20% or so of our energy from nuclear power in the U.S. 20% of power generation is coming from 98 units that are operating in the U.S. That's the biggest nuclear fleet anywhere in the world. And they need 50 million pounds of uranium annually. 
and U.S. production this year will be less than 1 million pounds. That's just for power generation. On top of that, the U.S. nuclear navy, we're talking about aircraft carriers and submarines that run on nuclear power, they also require uranium. But under all the international treaties, the, U- the U.S. nuclear navy needs U.S. origin uranium. Not even Canadian mined uranium could be used for the needs of the Department of Defense. So this mm. is another element of why there really is a strong national security case to be made for uh, the uranium situation, and that's why I think it's a very profound catalyst going into 2019. Okay, you just raised $20 million uh, in October. Uh, you had a strong demand for that. I think it was oversubscribed. Uh, you got a strong balance sheet. As we noticed, you, you have something like $24, $25 million in cash. Uh, what are your plans for as we go into 2019? And let me ask you, what sort of price of uranium do you need to turn the lights back on to start producing uranium again? Because you are ready to produce, as I understand it. Well, we're in a very unique position because back in 2010, we uh, became a uranium producer after executing very quickly from the first time you and I met in 2005. Uh, and the company executed, and five years later in 2010, we became uh, the newest uranium producer in the U.S. at the time. And so we gained the uh, expertise, the know-how, the people that we uh, assembled our team with, uh, and the permits and the infrastructure, all of that uh, underpins the key competitive advantage we have today as a company that has production readiness that can get back into production quickly. We've used the downturn uh, during this period where it just didn't make sense to mine more uranium and deplete our resources. We've used this downturn to make acquisitions, very accretive acquisitions of projects in Wyoming and Arizona and Colorado. Our project in uh, Wyoming is fully permitted so where it takes five to seven years to permit new uranium mines in the U.S., we have the first mover advantage because we have the production readiness, we have the track record, the proof of concept, and people that can really help us navigate the U.S. market. From the chairman of our company, who's the former U.S. Energy Secretary, Spencer Abraham, who's also a former U.S. Senator, the executive VP of our company, Scott Melby, who's the former president of the Uranium Producers of America, former president of Cameco, to our team in Texas and Wyoming that, again, have demonstrated their ability as we built our mine and in the past the many mines that they've been involved with building and developing and exploration expertise as well. So I feel the money that we raised in early October, Jay, completes the picture. We have a company that has a strong balance sheet with $24.5 million of cash on hand as of our latest filing, a company that has the assets, the permits, and the people uh, to really be in a leadership position as we anticipate a real uh, significant resurgence of the U.S. uranium mining industry. Uh, we uh, were last mining uranium at a price of 40 to $45 per pound, and we will want to see that same price point as a trigger to get back into uh, development and production. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you, 40. And you mentioned there's only a million, ounce, a million pounds that are produced in the United States, within the United States, how much will you be able to produce when you, uh, when you go back into production? JR, processing plants in South Texas, Hobson, has a physical capacity of 2 million pounds per year. Our mm-hmm. Reno Creek project in Wyoming has a production permit of 2 million pounds per year. So we have a production profile of 4 million pounds per year that we would want to work towards realizing as we ramp up in South Texas and 
build new projects like our Burke Hollow asset and develop Reno Creek. But that in itself is, again, a very unique position. I can't think of too many uh, junior companies that are in a position where they can point to a processing plants and permits in hand and a production profile that could be realized uh, with that uh, advantage in place, the, the, the facility and the permits. But more importantly, Jay, remember the method of mining uranium that we use, the institute recovery method, is right. really uh, proven to be a low-cost and environmentally friendly way of mining uranium. This is not strip mining. This isn't mm-hmm. sort of, you know, the, the, the way that really would require significant capex with open pit and underground mining. This is institute recovery. It's got uh, the lowest cost kind of profile uh, in the industry globally. The U.S. has been a leader in this type of mining uranium for decades. And so it really plays favorably also into our hand that the deposits that we've acquired and developed in Texas and Wyoming are amenable to this type of mining uranium. All right. Well, just with a minute left here, you mentioned that the U.S. needs 50 million pounds a year, year up to 4 million, someone else is producing one, tells me there's still a major shortfall. Do you see a lot of exploration potential, Amir, so that you can ramp up beyond 4 million pounds a year? Jay, I see substantial exploration potential. The U.S. has not been properly explored for uranium for decades. All the modern exploration tools and techniques that have been deployed in mineral exploration globally in the last five or ten years, they've never been properly applied to uranium exploration in the U.S. All projects that we have and anyone else has developed are from the previous cycle uh, 30 years ago or so. I think there's incredible potential, and the Canadians have shown that in Canada, there have been uh, wonderful discoveries made in uh, parts of Athabasca Basin where people thought mm-hmm. there was never any uranium. And in the last few years, there's been substantial discoveries made. And I think the same potential exists in the right basins in the U.S., like the South Texas Uranium Belt and the Powder River Basin of Wyoming. The U.S. Geological Survey has published reports about this, saying that undiscovered uh, ISR amenable uranium resources are available and, and, and are, uh, again, significant in places like South Texas. Uh, and this is exciting to think about. There could be uh, a real renaissance here in uranium mining. This used to be a big industry in the U.S. Back in yeah, the 70s, right. there were over 20,000 people employed. And so right. there's a real room for growth here in this industry. Okay, we'll have to leave it go at that, Amir. Thank you so much. A very exciting story, I must say. Uh, I hope our listeners will pay some attention. Uh, for their own good. Uh, thank you very much for being with us, and uh, we'll look to keep up with you in the future. All thank right. You, uh, thank you, Amir. Well, folks, we do have to go to break, but don't go away because I'll be right back with David McElvaney of the McElvaney Financial Companies uh, with some very interesting, I think, very insightful things to tell us about what he sees for 2019 and uh, into the future. Don't go away. We'll be right back with David McElvaney. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. 
The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Gold Mining Inc., ticker symbol G-O-L-D on the TSX and G-L-D-L-F on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again David McElvaney. David is the president of the McElvaney Financial Companies, McElvaney Wealth Management, and ICA, a precious metals brokerage firm. Thanks for joining me again, David. Jay, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, there, You're sitting there, I suppose, looking out a window into the beautiful Rocky Mountains while I stare at some uh, at some brick wall here. So... Um, <laughs> In any event, that's a choice that I've made and you've made. Uh, I've titled today's show, Where is America and Its Markets Heading in 2019? And in writing my promotion for this, uh, well, we do a little promotional piece every week for our show. I said, and I quote, America's social and moral fiber is wearing thin and the republic our founding fathers bequeathed to us in 1776 is rapidly being torn asunder. Uh, well, those are those are my thoughts. Um, do you agree with that? And if so, to what extent? And and if you do agree with it, uh, why do you think that's happening? Right. So the torn asunder part, I might have a few issues with because I think what we've seen is a process of erosion. And uh-huh. as you get to the end of a process of erosion, and maybe this is just framing, and that's mm-hmm. the difference. Um, but the end of the process of erosion, imagine a giant edifice, there can be a violent collapse at the end, but really what is happening today has been happening for some time. And so the values mm-hmm. that we saw expressed in 1776 by our founders, certainly they have been eroding. I think the greater issues there are social amnesia, a forgetting, a cultural amnesia, a forgetting of things that matter most. So virtue, character, and things that have uh, permanence. We've substituted them and perhaps confused uh, means as having greater value than ends. You know, uh, I I wonder why we've forgotten. And I I look at the educational system that we have. It seems to me that uh, the things that I was taught by Mr. Smith back in the 19 in my eighth grade class back in uh, in Dalton, Ohio, uh, back in the, uh, well, I'm really dating myself back in the late 50s. Um, we don't hear those values, those same values. For example, we were required to memorize the opening of the Declaration of Independence, and that has stuck with me all of these years because I think it was such an important document in expressing what America was about. 
uh, its legacy, if you will. And when it comes to legacy, David, I know you've given a great deal of thought to legacy, personal legacy, national legacy, too, I suppose. Um, How have we forgotten? Because it seems to me that our country was one and is still one that is very unique uh, throughout human history and that um, its origins were very unique. Right. So traditional values have been lost to some degree because we have misplaced priorities. The things that we prefer today come easier. If I come home from the office, I can throw up my feet and watch a television show or a binge watch a Netflix period, uh, you know, you know, five, six, seven shows at once. And, and maybe I do that because it is easy. Do you know what's harder? Harder is coming home and engaging in conversation with my wife and my kids. Uh-huh. That takes hard work. You talk about hard work in grade school, learning and memorizing the Declaration of Independence. I, I think to some degree, we want it easy. We want easy money. We want an easy life. We want uh, an easy job. We don't want people to challenge us in certain ways. And you know, I, I think that's that's basically a sign of the times we have become, because of a certain amount of uh, prosperity, become somewhat fat, dumb, and lazy. Well, it's human nature, I would su- I suppose. Not that our uh, that the founding fathers would have been any different if they were living in this time and age. Um, with time, we all economize. You're exactly right. I mean, if we can find an easier way to get things done, we will. It's not necessarily an exclusive indictment on our age. Founding fathers would have done so too. But you're right. You're shaped by your circumstances. And sometimes coming out of difficulty and struggle, you have a different sense of uh, values and, and character and virtue than you might uh, coming out of a, a period of great success. Um, and, and, and again, what we've had, which is a really a, an unprecedented period of largesse and wealth. I mean, take, for instance, household net worth in America today, $109 trillion. It's never been higher. It's mm-hmm. ne- there has never been a period in U.S. history where as a percentage of GDP, 528% of GDP, that is household net worth. We have never had it so good. And at the same time, we're not necessarily the kind of people that you would say we've never been so good. Does that make mm-hmm. a difference? I mm-hmm. think it does in the end. Mm-hmm. Well, no doubt about it. And I guess one of the questions I would have for you, and I, I uh, how do we go through a period of prosperity. I mean, certainly this is historical. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that's very natural throughout history. Uh, going back into biblical times, we saw how when times were really good, people started to forget the lessons of the past and started misbehaving in a way that they brought about their own demise. And, you know, I guess the question is then, given the changes that have taken place, given the technology that we have now, all the different things that have taken place, the, the, the affluence that you just mentioned, uh, is it possible to regain those values without going through some hard times, or do we have to go through hard times uh, to learn the lessons over again as a society? And then I guess the other question is, I know that you have children, you have, you have a family. Uh, I have a very good friend, Chen Lin, who has done extremely well as an investor, and I know that he's very careful to try to teach his kids not to take all of this for granted. But what can we do as individuals to try to put this in perspective um, and, and so that we live our lives in a way that is more responsible? Right. I don't know that we can change society, but we certainly can change 
our piece of society. So mm-hmm. complacency is what we're fighting. If that is in the area of morals and ethics and spirituality, if it has an impact into sociological spheres, political spheres, and 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 the economy, we're talking about fighting complacency. We're talking about being deliberate about the things that matter to you. We're talking about investing in relationships. I Yes, an individual can make a difference with calculation, with deliberation, with intentionality, but I would shrink the universe to something very easy to digest. For you as an individual, there are things that you can do within your own family construct that can make a huge difference. Don't try to change the world, just change the little world under your feet. <laughs> yes, and I and I would uh, highly recommend to my listeners The International Legacy by David McElvaney, a book uh, that I that I, it's just a really it's a wonderful read, David. I thank you so much for the effort. It must have taken quite a bit of work to put this in, although it is a uh, you know a personal account of your life and and what has happened and how you are intentional about your legacy and how important it is. But more, I think one of the things I took away from your book is that you know you say don't try to change the world, do what you can do to make things better, and that has a tremendous impact more than we can ever realize on the people that that we come in contact with, I believe. And I think your book points that out in, in many different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're dealing with is an issue of quality in relationships. And, and when we think about the decline in moral values and its ultimate impact into the economy and economic decline, you can see that by compromising the quality of our relationships – we end up enabling the confusion of priorities, the things that we strive for most in life, and we operate without regard to the future. Again, if you want to look at the economy as as a, as a macro uh, level expression of what happens on the micro level, when when you operate in selfishness, you can do things like ramp up. How many trillions of dollars do we have in debt now? I mean, if, if yeah. we're talking about outstanding debt securities, that is now 460% of GDP. We're willing to embrace that debt because we have no regard for the future. We have no regard for future generations who actually have to pay that off. It's an expression of selfishness and short-sightedness. And again, what I said earlier, we do sacrifice ends for means, and I think all of that ties back to quality of relationships. So that there is a linking between moral values and economic decline, uh, again, because I think we've compromised the quality of relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the questions I have in my mind is, uh, and this goes back to my days in college, I had a professor named uh, Dr. Peyton Yoder, a uh, little small Mennonite college that I went to in Kansas, and uh, I think one of the things he said that really changed the way I viewed the world and why I'm talking to you now, quite frankly, was this history professor was quite convinced that when the currency is debased, the nation, a nation's work ethics decline and also overall, generally, their morality declines. Now, what I would think is that it's not, it's not that a debased currency causes people to do what they do, although it probably uh, – allows them or permits them or gives them license to do things they wouldn't do if money was honest, if it couldn't be created out of thin air. Um, you, do you have any thoughts on that? In other words, what is the cause here? Is it? Yeah, I think to uh, some it, degree, it, yeah. you see an mm-hmm. expression of that in France today where workers are feeling like they've been devalued, even as mm-hmm. their currency has been devalued, even as they struggle 
to make ends meet and pay the bills, the issue is they're not making more, yet everything around them costs more. Well, why does everything cost more? And I think you and I would agree the reason everything costs more is because 1971, we removed ourselves from the gold standard, the final iteration of the gold standard, Bretton Woods, and any connection to gold. And since that point, we've been able to expand money and credit at a near infinite pace. And that, that does devalue the work of a man or woman considerably, and I think makes everyone operate in a more desperate fashion. So, yeah, I think there is there is a relation between sound money and sound behavior within society. Certainly, you see that in the area of politics. When you enable an entire fiat currency system, you know what you also enable? You enable unending, limitless spending at the governmental level. You can create as much credit and debt as you want. We could spend trillions and trillions and trillions more. We were shocked when we got to a trillion yeah. under <laughs> under the Reagan administration, right. right? And it took from right. George Washington to Jimmy Carter to do it. We we should not be shocked if we add another $10 trillion to the national debt. Why? Because we have the printing press and the availability. And, and again, I, I think this is, this is an issue of limitless promises by politicians, which is enabled very disingenuously, but it's enabled by the monetary system that we have. They can mm-hmm. buy votes because of the money system that we have. It is unsound, as unsound as we have uh, anything else represented in Washington today. You know, I've known Ron Paul for many years. Um, uh, I've considered him a friend in the past, uh, and he has done what he could to try to get this message across that sound money is important for our liberty, for our prosperity longer term. But, you know, David, again, getting back to what we can do as individuals, I'd like to go to the products that your that your father set up and you have uh, have built up over time as well since you've taken over the business from your father, who is now serving other people, I believe, in the Philippines, um, helping uh, disadvantaged people, people in an orphanage, I believe, he's working. And uh, your dad is somebody I've, I've known before I knew you, frankly. I'm much closer to his age. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about the Mal- uh, McIlvaney Financial Companies. What are the products that you provide? And one in particular I want to ask you about, because I know it's a new one called Vaulted. It's a way for people to save, I guess, save gold. Or, or talk to us about Vaulted and then in general what your the services that your firm provides. And Jay, we've been in the metals business for coming up on 50 years mm-hmm. and in the wealth management business for a good part of that as well. And we saw a need in the market for an even more transparent, straightforward way to approach gold investing, especially for a younger generation who may be newer to the market or to gold. So we developed Vaulted. Vaulted Vaulted.com is where you can learn more about it. And it's an easy-to-use web-based application to reinvent the way people invest in gold. A key value that we embraced through the development process was transparency. Gold investment opportunities have been criticized with, I think, due reason for their hidden fees and taxes and things of that nature. Well, Vaulted addresses all of those issues by providing complete transparency through the investment process. So we have some of the lowest fees in the industry, and it's all shared up front. So the gold is, I think, again, this is critical for a younger generation particularly, it's certified conflict-free. And unlike other gold investing platforms, vaulted, you buy and sell real gold stored in the Royal Canadian Mint. You can request your gold bars at any time, and they will be shipped securely to you via FedEx. So vaulted is a convenient, accessible application that allows users to build stability for themselves and their families, starting with an investment as little as $10. The last thing I'll mention is that 
We've created gift cards so that an older generation who's already put trust in gold as a hedge against the market, as a hedge against inflation, can fund that easy-to-use gold account for their loved ones and, and even faithful employees. It's essentially a substitute for savings and banking. And, Jay, the reason why we focus on that so heavily is because the value of capitalism, the value of savings, the value of the market economy assumes that you can take what you have saved and put it to good use. But mm-hmm. what happens if you are robbed? An inflation target of 2% is 2% theft every year. We have yep. inflation targets all over the world of 4 and 6 and as high as 13% today. <laughs> and that is considered an acceptable monetary policy. Yeah. It is theft right in front of us. So we had to create something that represents a saving and banking alternative because just to sit in greenbacks in the banking system means that you will be eroded just as much as our moral fabric has been twisted and turned and torn asunder, as you suggested earlier. Mm-hmm. And and some of your, okay, so the vaulted is really something that anybody can use because, as you say, you can get in for as little as $10. Uh, some of your other services, though, are, I think, more for people of substantial means. Uh, yeah. Your and wealth management is probably something that you need to uh, have a little more money for. Yeah, exactly. Our wealth management service is for someone who's looking to preserve wealth and operate tactically, whether it is long in the market or short in the market. We have a variety of products. We've partnered with Doug Noland here in the last few years mm-hmm. for what we call our tactical short, and that allows for a protective sleeve, a hedge to be put alongside uh, an existing portfolio of stocks and bonds to lower your volatility and create liquidity in a market downturn. So, for instance, October, this time frame that's been so volatile, beautiful time for us. This is the kind of place where we shine and are able to show our value in a total portfolio mix where we are balancing out a portfolio. We manage portfolios actively on the long side as well. And yeah, it does, in order to do that, uh, it does take a little bit more than $10. Yeah. Well, um, but anyway, people can uh, can go to your website and, and explore that uh, if it's appropriate. But I think really for sure Vaulted is something. Actually, I did check out Vaulted, David, and it is a quite an easy process to get involved with. I think the only reason I didn't is because I still have my gold savings somewhere else, but it's something I should get started with in any event, I think, and uh, I just have to find the time to do it. With uh, Speaking of time, we don't have that much time left. What do you, looking to 2019, your crystal ball, um, I know crystal balls are dangerous because somebody said those who use crystal balls eat glass or something like that, yeah. but, but what do you see uh, going into 2000? I mean, you and Doug Nolan, who's uh, someone I've known for many, many years, uh, what are you seeing? And also maybe just tell our listeners where they might avail themselves to some of the wisdom that's provided, I think, free of charge on your website, perhaps, uh, that Doug and you provide. And also you have an excellent weekly uh, podcast that I would tell my listeners they definitely should avail themselves to as well. Yeah, with with interest in that gold product in particular, vaulted.com is the place where you can go and very easy to sign up and open an account to do that with the Royal Canadian Mint. Um, if you're interested in continuing to expand your knowledge and understanding of where we're at in this market and credit cycle, M as in Mary, wealthm.com. So mwealthm.com 
and, and you can look for the Credit Bubble Bulletin, which Doug writes on a weekly basis. We've got a one-page wrap-up for the market every Friday. And as you mentioned, we do also have our audio commentary, which is every Wednesday. So we put a lot of information out there. The Credit Bubble Bulletin is very helpful for gauging where we're at in this credit cycle. And so in answer to your question, where are we at in 2019? We're at the end of the line. We're at the end of the line. The credit cycle has run its course, and we've gone as far as we can. I gave you two statistics earlier, and the significance of those is really only known in comparison to everything that we've seen before it. In terms of total outstanding debt securities, I mentioned that we're now 460% of GDP. That Mm -hmm. is the highest it has ever been. The previous cycle peaks were 379% in 2007, and we had 539%. I'm sorry, 359% in the year 2000. So we have far outpaced what we had in any of the previous previous cycle peaks. The same is true of household net worth. So when you count, I'm not saying it's bad to have household net worth at these elevated levels. It's just dangerous because usually asset classes are mean reverting. They're cyclical in nature. If they go up, they also go down. And the fact that we've come farther than we've ever come before suggests that the next three, five, seven, even 10 years will be very disappointing in terms of market returns in stocks and bonds. 90% of the assets that are looked at by Deutsche Bank on a routine basis are down from the beginning of the year through the middle of November. 90% of the asset categories dollar denominated. That tells you that there is a universal theme here. It is that there is a, a correlation across assets. It's not one asset that is in decline. It's many, many, 90%. In fact, that's the largest number of assets all in decline at once since 1901. So for those who are wondering where we're at, we are at the cycle peak. If you're not serious about protecting your savings, protecting your wealth, you need to pull your head out of the sand and re-engage. All right. And so uh, the one asset that I know of that's pretty well negatively correlated with almost everything else is gold, I believe. That's, that's right. And I think the next five to 10 years, five to 10 years is about the time frame I have. And, and I, I think maybe if I said conservatively five to seven, we expect to see gold in the 3,500 range, maybe as high as 5,000. It depends on the activities, not only in the financial markets, but ultimately in the geopolitical sphere as well. If you look mm-hmm. back in time, gold generally peaks when the stock market is on its keister. And if you want to see gold really go bananas, then bring some geopolitical political fracas into the mix and that's I think what we're getting ready for we've we've got it we've got the pump primed with Russia and Ukraine we've got the pump primed with discussions in China and a breakdown in trade discussions with China we've got the Petro one which is now traded for 10 months the the the, the currency I'm sorry the uh, the oil um, futures contract denominated in 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 one it's traded for 10 months now and is capturing market share from every other major oil exchange and there are reasons why we will probably end up in a major war with China. all right well we'll have to leave it go at that but i should tell my listeners that that's the kind of thing that you talk about every week on your show david it's uh, it's really priceless people should go there it's free of charge but it is priceless thank you so much for being with us i really appreciated our our chat And I hope we can do it again sometime in the near future. Thank you, Jay. I'm looking forward to it. All right, folks. Well, that is all the time we have next week. uh, Dan Oliver is with me, Michael Oliver also, and uh, Dr. Quentin Henning of Novo Resources is scheduled to be with me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Often referred to as one of the best teams in junior gold exploration, having discovered a 5 million ounce gold mine and sold a second company amidst discovery, the management behind Orin Resources now has a world-class exploration portfolio within Canada and Peru. Projects that give the company one of the largest direct pipelines for major discoveries globally, with one of the deepest technical teams to explore them. Entering into its third year of aggressive pursuit, Orin is expecting results from two of their major projects throughout the rest of this year. For the latest, head to orinresources.com and subscribe.